Steve's underground. Go shenanigans. We don't have a theme song because we don't need one. Hey everyone, welcome back once again to Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans, hosted by David Heath. I am the producer, editor, D.B. Spitzer, welcoming you back once again. So glad you're here for our 10th episode. I think it's the final episode of the first season. Second season, cool new stuff's gonna happen. So, this episode, from what I understand, is about the KGB. There's some KGB stuff in it. There's a haunted house story, kind of overthrew it, and uh, comic books. But that's just because that's what's labeled on these tapes. Anyway, I'm going to get to the bottom of some of this stuff. I'm going to go check out Oleander coming up soon. Uh, next season, I'm going to spend some time in Oleander, and Dave's going to show me around. And yeah, but so let's get into this first segment here and find out what's going on with Dave. And uh, let's find out what's going on with these uh, shenanigans with these goats. It's underground base. Hey, if you want to help the show, just, you know, help Dave out, we've got t-shirts. T-shirts you can find in the show notes if you go to the link. For, or just go to pgttcm.com and look for the shop, the store. You'll find shirts. It'll be cool. All right. Well... Hope you enjoy this episode, and you'll hear me a little bit later. Here we go. Testing, uh, one, two, three, uh, testing. Hello? Hello? Okay, uh, good sound check. Hey, uh, this is Dave, and we've got a new one here at uh, Dave's uh, Underground Goat Shenanigan, and that I'm not broadcasting from the Illuminati base or the goat farm above it. But uh, we're actually out in the field. This is our first trip. We're still in Oleander, Oregon. And uh, we're going to do a broadcast live. Well, not live. I'm recording it and, and sending it to DB. But we're going to broadcast uh, here in front of the Oleander Mansion. And uh, we're hoping, trying to get DB to come out, give you a tour of Oleander. But, um, so, um, Every creepy antebellum mansion that you ever saw in a movie, that's what the Oleander Mansion looks like. Um, so, a little bit of history. Um, Oleander, Oregon, is it's not named after the flower or the plant. It's actually named after a man named Josiah Oleander, who, um, like many people in the 1870s, 1880s that came out west up into Oregon, out of the Portland area. He uh, fought in the Civil War. And unlike most, though, he didn't fight for the Union and he didn't wear a uniform. He was uh, what they call bushwhacker. Basically, he was a guerrilla fighter. In fact, he served with the uh, very famous Quantrell's Raiders which uh, Frank and Jesse James were members of. Um, and according to the story, uh, Frank and Jesse would have nothing to do with Josiah uh, Oleander because he was just too mean. Uh, so, you know, you gotta be a, you got to be an interesting character. Frank and Jesse James don't think you're nice enough to hang around. So, um... He basically kicked around. He, he, so he fought for the South. 
and so um, and uh, probably committed crimes uh, all the way west, keeping uh, uh, away from the posses until he got up to the, uh, San Francisco, and then they took him north, you know, turn up north, be chased, uh, and he ended up in what we now call Portland, kind of its first boom period. Uh, 1890s, uh, this is, uh, you know, the Benson, uh, Stark period, and they were, uh, just starting to build these large hotels, and it was becoming a, a major port, um, yeah, honestly, you know, before I moved here, when I lived in California, I thought, you know, Portland was a, a coastal city, I thought it was on the coast, I really did, um, but actually, it's a hundred miles inland, and there is a port, but it's off of the Columbia River. So um, basically, it was cheaper to take supplies up a boat through navigable waters of the Columbia to Portland than to land it, say, um, somewhere like Lincoln or, or somewhere on the coast and then you know, try to bring it that extra 100 miles. Um, so, uh, Josiah Oleander, he ends up in Portland, and he's basically running his cons and robbing people and just being a terrible person. And then he comes up with this idea. Uh, like many other growing cities, they didn't really like burying the dead, and and there are there you can see there's definitely some big cemeteries. Uh, in the middle of Portland, uh, uh, Virgil Earp is buried in one, believe it or not. Uh, that's another story. Um, but they take most of the bodies that would go down, I think, I guess Couch Street or what? Couch Street. Um, and they would basically get the bodies and they would take it across, take them across Columbia, try to get them far away. So, uh, Josiah only understood I can make money off of this. So he basically went to the, the, the city fathers and he went to uh, you know the, the, the senators there and said, I'll tell you what, I will build a city and we'll build it about 20, 30 miles away from Portland and we'll build a railroad track here and you can put all your dead bodies take them over to my city, which I'm going to name after me, Oleander, and we'll bury all the bodies here. And that way, you don't have to worry about these bodies. Um, so, and that's true. They, they basically built and gave him a, a railroad. Uh, he built the city, you know, and so people not only sent their bodies, but, you know, they also came up here to visit um, you know, the hotels and things, uh, so, uh, so Josiah Oleander, quite, he made quite a bit of money, and he built this, this mansion, and, uh, it's been, uh, I don't, it's been abandoned, and it's actually pretty well taken care of for an abandoned mansion, at least it looks like it, but, uh, I don't think anybody's been here for 30 years, there was a, a dis- when uh, Dan Cooper took over as mayor and um, the, the Oleander family couldn't pay taxes or something. So I 
I'm pretty sure the story I hear is that it's actually been property of the, the city. Um, okay, so um, this, of course, is supposed to be haunted. So um, I don't have permission to go into the Oleander Mansion today, but we're going to walk around it, uh, talk, you know, I'll describe it to you. Uh, and, and I think it's a, this would be a good, you know, outing our first, uh, you know, outdoors broadcast here. So, keeping topical, though, as I mentioned, um, Josiah Oleander fought with Quantrell's Raiders, um, and so the statue that was built on him in the center of, um, of town, I mean, it, it, he didn't wear a uniform, so he's got, you know, he's got his, his guns and his cowboy hat and you know, so he looks like a cowboy, but he's actually um, a, a Confederate commando. Um, but the statue was destroyed uh, about 90, 80 years ago. Sometime in the 30s, it was destroyed overnight. Now, the story, and I'm not saying it's true, I'm just saying it's a story, uh, it was taken down by Sasquatch. So if he ever, you know, so the... the the, the, the pedestal's still there, you know, so it says, you know, Colonel Josiah Oleander, city founder, but the statue's gone, just the boots, you know, it's just the boots, and, um, yeah, and, you know, you ask people, they say, yeah, take it down by Sasquatch, so uh, I'm not saying it's true, but that, that's the story. Okay, so uh, I'm setting up my recording equipment, and what, what, what are they doing here? It's the the twins. It's my my two little goats, uh, uh, Solomon and uh, Sonia. And hey, 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 come come back here. Uh, so if 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 you're familiar with the show, um, they're the uh, uh, they're the ones that uh, I I discovered the underground uh, base. Come back here, come back here. So yeah, I discovered the uh, underground Illuminati base and. Uh, they were heading in my jeep, I guess, and and they're just taking off, and they're running into, and they just walk through the walls. E- yeah, that that's the other thing. If you're familiar with the show, is that, that that's how I found the Illuminati base. That they they walk through walls, and now they have run off and ran into uh, a uh, haunted mansion. Okay, hey, um, DB, um, hey, listen, I, I'm gonna try to get my goats back, uh, if you can just, um, uh, maybe if, if you can kind of maybe play that, that tape I sent you, um, let me, I gotta get my goats back, here, 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 come on, I got raisins, goats, go, go, goats, hey everybody, this is David, and, uh, we're gonna talk about how an amazing, very politically impactive and um, well-written comic book got turned into a movie that got a 0% uh, favorable rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And I am going to be talking about the last day of American crime.
of both the uh, Netflix movie as well as I'm going to be talking about the, the comic book, which I, I had read before I saw the movie, and which I really, really like. But it's sometimes a painful read, but it's not a painful read because it's a bad story. It's a painful read because the writer is deliberately expressing painful things. And there's no way that I can tell this or, or talk about this without some spoilers, both for the um, TV show or the, the TV movie, which is on Netflix, or the, um, the, uh, the comic book. So uh, let's just start out with what my feelings are about the movie. Eh, it's okay. And that is probably the worst thing that you could say about an action thrower. Eh, it was okay. Uh, and we can go in, it definitely has some problems. Uh, you know, stars look nice, you know. You know, there, there's guns that get shot. There's, there's buildings that blow up. But uh, it's okay. And, and like I said, that's the worst thing, I think. You know, if you're a director for an action-adventure movie, that's the last thing you want to hear. I mean, it's not good enough to be good, but it's not bad enough to be good. It's not this, like, you know, Plan 9 from outer space. Oh, wow, look at it. It's a terrible movie, and I'm having so much fun diving into it. It's just a pretty much forgettable action movie. Uh, it does go long. It's like two hours and 19 minutes. Um, definitely one of the problems with the movie. Uh, and there's definitely some things in the movie that were added for the movie that add nothing to the story and or plot. Or I guess it, it could have been trimmed down. And the parts that were not in the comic book that were added, uh, they were needless. Now, the comic book, however, completely different story. It takes 80% noir. And, and I mean, it's up there, yeah, Sin City, Road to Perdition, uh, 100 Bullets noir. I mean, that good noir. And then it takes about 20% political statement. And we're, we're talking, you know, uh, queen and country, uh, DMZ, uh, Bridgeland, you know, comics statement, and, and mixes them together pretty well. And, um, you know, if, if you know me and my view on comics, the fact that I'm putting it, this comic with all those other comics, it, it, it's good. And, it does, it is mainly a noir story, but it does have some political background in which the United States is falling apart, where there is, you get from just like the snippets from the, the TVs on, that are on in the bar, you know, one day a thousand protesters are killed and 200 cops. So what we were going through 
in the last month, but magnified. There's this scene where two old gangsters meet in the park. And then you realize that the thing in the distance that they see, it's hanged bodies. And so that's one of the criticisms that both the movie and the comics get is, well, look at what's going on. And, and, and I will admit that was bad timing for the movie. There's no way they could have known this. But, you know, the comics was written five, six years ago. It, it's saying, hey, this is the America we're heading to. Uh, in the much way um, DMZ, and, and I read DMZ and I look at the news and I go, this is where we're heading. So, yes, the movie may have been bad taste at times. Maybe should have held up the release. But the comics is saying this at a different time and giving us a warning of what's ha going to happen. So I, I definitely do not knock the comic for its political statement. And, and the comic doesn't give you an answer. You know, the police are, are suffering too, but they are killing thousand Americans a day. So in this society, the government jumps at this attempt to stop crime by creating these huge signal devices that once that broadcast that once a person is is, is you know it's in the background such like as a cell tower and people can't commit crime when they're under when they're they're hit with this tower and so what's happening is it's about to go into effect. So this is the last chance that anybody has to commit crime. And these three noir gangster archetype are going to pull off not only the biggest, actually there's four, but three main characters, the biggest, you know, crime in history. It's going to be the last crime in history. And even people who hate the movie think it's a terrible movie, don't like the comics for some reason. Everyone, that's a brilliant idea. Uh, and again, I think it's very uh, thought-provoking for our time. Uh, so the, uh, the comic book is by uh, Rick Remender, who is probably most famous for doing uh, Deadly Class, which is a sci-fi TV show now. But he uh, did it originally as a comic book. And it's another noir street level uh, gut punch of a comic and um it's good i also recommend that one I've, I've only read the first three graphic novels uh and like uh last days of american crime the comic it, it can be graphic uh so let's say that the thing the one thing i think that the tv show did right and it took so there were two main crime families in the comic uh, a Hispanic family and a Russian family. And the, the movie took this and, and basically made it one crime organization. And it's sort of this generic, all nationality, all races, uh, mafia slash Illuminati type crime organization. And I think that was better... I mean, I get to why they would have to take two and make it into one. That just saved space, saved time, uh, saved characters. You know. But 
what it also did is it removed quite a few um, derogatory racial slurs. And, and if, and, and I'm not going to defend the use of, you know, slurs in, in, in any type of medium. I, I am going to say, though, it's not the writer who's saying it. He's saying that characters would say it, so he's not saying it's true. He's saying it's a realistic response by human beings in this environment, even though it's not necessarily right. And, and there again, I kind of, kind of defended it, and I, I hate myself now. But I think it was correct to sort of eliminate that, especially the, the, the Hispanic slurs. And I, th I think that that was a good, solid move by the TV series just to make it this generic James Bond type organization. Uh, and, and it doesn't take away from it that it's, and I say James Bond like Spectre, but maybe more close like generic TV non-Italian mafia, but it doesn't, it doesn't take away doing that. So I think that that's the one thing that the, the, the show got right. What it gets wrong is that it waters down the characters. And so the three main characters are these very unlikable characters. But you know what? We want that in noir. You know, I had a friend who wrote a, a, a noir novel. He says it was very difficult for him to make unlikable characters because this is, you know, the street. They've got to be charismatic and charming, but you don't like them as human beings because these are professional criminals who are rough and tough and kill and are out only to take care of their themselves. And, and so the movie tries to make them more humane, but does it without giving them more personality. You can make someone complex, interesting, deep, and still make them as unlikable human beings. And we've got decades of noir stories doing that. So the, the main character is Graham Brick. And he is the stereotypical, old-school, OG bank robber. And he is, he is old. He, he came from a different generation. So when I say old, he's late 40s, early 50s. Uh, and in the comic book, uh, he looks a lot like a fit Peter Graves with white hair, you know, and, and he is. He is from a different time, and, and that's a noir trope. Now, what the movie does is, well, you can't have a, an older, you know, leading man, so they knock about 20, 30 years off of his, his age. So... Um, it takes away from the character, I really think. I mean, I think I definitely identified more with this this old guy who they're not even robbing money now. They're robbing a a drive that has money on it. You know, it, it is this. 
it's the end of the line for him. Not only because they are building these towers that prevent you from making crime, the world's changed. He, he's, he's, you know, the black hat cowboy who's looking out now in the 1900s and he sees, you know, cars and, and, and the world's changing. Um, and, and I, I liked him much better. I liked all the characters better in the uh, comic book. Then you've got uh, Shelby Dupree, who is the, the classic femme fatale, but with a twist. She's also a hacker. So she represents, you know, this new generation of criminals that, you know, don't that use their brains over their body. Okay, uh, I misspoke there. I should have said brains over brawn because she definitely uses her body. Um, and I could see why she, people would not like this in either the comic book and to a lesser degree the movie because they, they water it down. But she knows that she's not playing at a fair table. She's knowing that all these other people can turn on her, kill her, and that she is not physically a match for them. So she uses her body, she uses her looks to equal the table. And I can see again, I mean, that's a classic noir trope, but it's given a little bit more from her perspective and that it's a survival instinct, but also it, it, it's that her sexuality is the great equalizer in this story. And she knows that, um, and that makes her dangerous. And you never know which side she's playing. Now, in the TV show, they tone that down a little bit, but then they add it up to some gratuitously. But what they do is they give her a sympathetic reason that the government has her sister and that they're going to kill her sister if she doesn't do certain things. Well, th th that sister's just not there in the book. And what makes her an interesting character is that the she's being played by both sides. She's actually being played by at least three sides. And she's playing them back. And, and, and Brick, I mean, he realizes that. But that doesn't necessarily mean they can't all get what they want. And then we've got... Kevin Cash, and he's the noir, stereotypical, loose cannon. He can go off in any moment, and he is the he is the child of this criminal organization, and you know he and his father have this ongoing feud, and his father. You know, basically, he seduces his stepmother, uh, and he makes sure that his his father knows it, and so his father, you know, kills his stepmother. In, in the comic book, it's basically revealed slowly but surely he's a sociopath, and he feels that that's his way of being able to beat the the signal, but. The movie waters him down again and makes him a more sort of 
force of chaos. I, I think that they were trying to be the the Joker. Um, and it okay, it's not badly acted, and, and I get that, but that um, he's he's much more interesting, quiet character who is a sociopath realizes he's a sociopath and says how can I use this sociopathy to my best interest as opposed to him just being a weak Joker clone then the movie adds a, a, an extra character that's not in the comic book uh, William Sawyer and uh, he's a police officer. He's mainly a desk officer who is attacked when he's all alone by a pair of junkies trying to steal drugs from the police station and has to kill one. And that completely changes his perspective and how things are going to happen when the, the signal goes off. And... At first, the first scene, I thought it was pretty interesting in how they were going to use him. They don't. It, it, there's no reason for this character to be in this movie other than to pad time. He adds nothing to the movie. Uh, I thought I knew, well, okay, they're going to use him this way and it's going to have this surprise ending. No. Um, instead, they go for a very boring ending to his arc that had nothing to do with, hey, Maybe the police officers also feel, well, you, we should have free will or, you know, no. He, there's, there's no reason for this character to be in the movie. It, 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 was, it, it was a waste. Now, where the movie works well, there are it's the scenes that are taken literally almost word for word and from the comic book and where the comic book is, is almost used as a um, storyboard. Um, unfortunately, that only happens three times, like in the first, and they're all in the first 15 minutes. So there's a starting scene uh, where Brick is basically torturing someone uh, because they betrayed him, and he needs the information. Um, and it's, it's, it's a, again, it's a disturbing scene, but this whole idea is that, you know, the artist is to shock his audience. And then there's the other scene, which was pretty much cribbed right from the story, where uh, a sniper and a spotter are sent to take him out, and he comes up behind him. And, and that's a good action scene. And then the final scene that is pretty much, you know, shot for shot from the book, is probably the most infamous scene in the comic book, which is the, the bathroom sex scene. And again, not your cup of tea, I understand. I mean, it's setting up some group dynamics here that are gonna come into play later in the story. So I understand why the author inserted it, but if you don't like this, ah, then avoid it, pass on it, definitely. Um, but you know what? And it's done pretty much shot for shot in, the, the movie but it's not as interesting as it is in the comic book believe it or not but it, it but it is one of the more interesting scenes 
because the rest are just sort of fall flat. Now later there are some scenes that are close, maybe 50%, and then there's scenes that have nothing to do with the comic book. Um, but when it does, you know, actually follow the comic book, it's good, if not shocking, television. And the, the ending of the movie is basically a hot steaming mess that I don't quite understand. Uh, and I think I kind of get it, but I'm not going to spoil it. But yeah, there's a there's a lot of holes that you could basically drive a garbage truck full of money through. Uh, and they do. And okay, yeah. Uh, and it's supposed to have this very touching sort of ending. And it's like, oh, wait, what's going on? Um, so the comic book, however, is different. And one of the things I liked about the comic book is that they knew that they get the they get do the hit they could do the robbery, but the problem is getting out of the country. It's still smuggling money out of stolen money out of the country. Still a crime. How are they going to do that in enough time? And so the three main characters basically come up with the loopholes. They they they, they think they can create a loophole that allow them to finish the crime, but they're each separate and they don't necessarily tell the others, you know, what that loophole is. And, and each loophole is very, um, you know, that personality, that character, you get, okay, I see where that character would come up with that idea. Um, I'm not gonna spoil it, uh, because I think that is one of the payoffs in the comic book, it is this sort of, we know, this is going to happen. We played, you know, loopholes. We played, you know, loose and fancy with the law of our lives. How can we use this event we can't stop into our advantage? And, and in ways, I think that that's the biggest payoff in, in the whole comic book is these last three sort of ditch, you know, last ditch plans. Um, so, if you want to watch the movie and you just want to watch good-looking people shoot at each other and, and you're willing to say, well, who is this? Why are they in that car? Well, you know, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, like I said, it was okay. Um, if you have a tolerance for, you know deliberately painful writing and, and, and there's a scene in the comic book that is not in the movie because they just there's no snow way where where Kevin Cash returns to you know his family mansion and how that ends it is a ice pick in the gut and, and it just goes that you know even sociopaths can be influenced by things. Um, if you have a tolerance for that, if you liked 100 Bullets, if you like, you know, the Sin City Yarns, uh, if you liked The Godfather, uh, then I think this would be a comic book you might be interested in checking out. Okay, um, 
Hey, uh, if you've just uh, tuned in, um, this is Dave, and I am here at uh, at the Oleander Mansion, and uh, we were, we're doing a remote uh, because this is supposed to be a haunted house, and, but uh, my, my two goats, uh, Solomon and uh, they just jumped out of uh, my cheap here, and they ran into the mansion. And you may, you probably know if you've been listening to the show at all. These are the goats that are, they can walk through walls. And they have ran inside this haunted mansion. Um, so I've been outside. Um, I, there's these huge drapes. And I can't look in any of the windows. Um, and I've been calling them out. And, you know, I even had some raisins, their favorite food, in the Jeep. And I just, I can't get them to come out. Um, so... You know, let me check. I, I, I'm up at the door now, and I'm going to. Oh, it, it, it's 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 unlocked. Okay, it, it, it's it's unlocked. It, it's it's dark except for the lights coming in from the the door. I, I've got a flashlight, and gotta admit, this place looks a lot nicer inside than I thought. I I thought it would all be thrashed or, or but it, it's fully furnished. It looks really nice. It, you know, it looks like back in the yeah, 1890s, early 1900s. Okay, um, I'm going to see if I can maybe coax the, the goats out with raisins. Hey, kids. Hey, hey, hey babies. Uh, I'm here. You want some raisins? Uh, I don't I don't see them. I don't hear them. Uh, they, you know, they could have actually ran out the other side. I mean, I walked around. I didn't see any goat prints other than where, you know, where they ran in, so... Uh, you know, that's just a problem you have when you have goats that can walk through walls. Okay, I'm going through the the main room or the sitting room. I, I, I don't know what you would call a living room back in the, the 1800s. Uh, but, you know, there's a, there's a, looks like an organ and really sort of nice overstuffed furniture. And it's clean. There's no dust. There's, you know, somebody's been keeping good, keeping this place up. Uh, and over the fireplace, yeah, this, uh, okay, this has got to be, from what I've seen in textbooks, this has got to be a picture of Josiah Oleander. And, yeah, he looks like a guy who would intimidate Frank and Jesse James. He is an ugly-looking dude. He's got scars, and, and, uh, it, it's, I mean, this is a high-quality painting. I'm, I'm assuming it was painted at the time, it, it, but it's, it's almost a, a photorealistic quality painting, and he's got this big overcoat and sword and, you know, six shooters and, and this big giant sort of cavalry, cowboy hat, um, and he's, he's, the quality though, it's, it, it's, it's creepy, but it's, it's, it's well done, um, and, okay, I'm, I'm looking, it, it, it's signed here, it's signed 1903 Pikmin, that's, that's all it says, um, and he sat in the graveyard, um, and he's got the sword, but he's also got this cane with this really sort of green gem on it, um, and, you know, another thing about, uh, Josiah Oleander, I, you know, I think I told you that he got his money by basically providing a place for people to be buried 
outside of Portland so that the, you know, the city the city fathers didn't have to deal with bodies in you know the, the, the greater Portland area uh, so they, they basically got a railroad track and set up Oleander and this is right on um, this is right on uh, Glorious Resurrection Cemetery and we'll, we'll talk more about Glorious Resurrection uh, because there, there's 3,000 people buried here, or 3,000 or more. There's only about 1,000 people in Oleander. So there's three, literally three dead bodies in Oleander for every living human. But, uh, so, okay, um, well, not what I was thinking. So there's, the stories is that it got around that Josiah Oleander was a necromancer. Now, these are the same people who say his statue got torn down by a Sasquatch. So, you know, it's, you know, give it that much. But, uh, he, he, if, if I was going to do a movie and, you know, Cowboy Times and, uh, it was going to have a cowboy necromancer, I would want, I would want my, my villain to look just like this. Okay, so, um, alright, we're looking in here, um, you know, here's the kitchen, and it's all set up. Uh, the kitchen, I don't see any food, but I see knives and pots and pans. And, um, okay, walking through here. And, and here it looks like, okay, now we're in the, the dining room. And, and this is kind of creepy because it, it looks like it's all set up with a banquet. There's no people. I mean, no food, but you know, just these china plates and these. I'm, I'm assuming this is real silver silverware, and it's just, it's a dinner without food or people, and it's it's creepy. So I'm walking through here. Okay, um, gotta check what this room is, and it's actually it says on the sign here. Okay, this is the seance room. So this may be why uh, good old Josiah was, people thought he was a necromancer. So uh, let's go ahead. Okay, um, I'm walking in here. And this is, this is pretty creepy. Uh, again, it's looking, it's just ready for some buddy to um, uh, to come and sit down so uh, it, it's on the um, so on the the roof is painted it, it looks like you know the, it, it's the ceiling the ceiling is painted and there's like spirits looking down at you but if you look on the floor the wood is also painted and it's like spirits from hell looking up at you. And then there's this big round table with these chairs. And and there's a, a spirit board. Now, my understanding, and I'm not an expert on this, Ouija was a made-up word that when Milton Bradley or whoever, the game company, decided they were going to make a, a spirit board and mass market it, they didn't want to call it spirit board. They called it Ouija because Ouija sounded French, and it was you know the 20s and the 30s and all this 
you know, supernatural para, parapsychology science was supposed to be coming out of France. So this is it's not a Ouija board because unless unless this isn't contemporary with everything else, and it doesn't quite look like the it doesn't look like the the Ouija board exactly. I mean, it's not not the Milton Bradley or whatever the game company is that makes them. There's a little bit different. There's some demons and uh, the letters look different, but um. I didn't notice it, but, you know, we were working out, and the heat, I was, I don't know, 80, 82, 83 degrees outside, and probably, maybe a little cooler inside the house, but this room is cold, I would, this is like 60 to 70, it's, you know, 10, 15 degrees colder in this room than, uh, than outside, or, you know, it's colder than the rest of the house, so, okay, I'm, I'm leaving, okay, and, let's see what we, you know, I, I, let me go ahead, and this is, the house is a lot like the Winchester house, and, and it looks like, right here, I mean, there, these are stairs that just, they, they lead up to a wall, you know, and, and, and we go over on this side of the other, and this is vaguely cool, but it, it's stairs that lead up to a bookshelf, I mean, this is, and here's the grand stairs, and I, I think, I, I, I think this is actually leads up to the second floor. So, so the only light here is where I, I left the door open, and uh, and when the sun's coming in, and, and the mag light I pulled out of my Jeep, and uh, oh, they, they, you hear that? Okay, there, there they are. I can hear them. Uh, uh, they seem to be up in the second floor. Uh, I, I'm, I'm coming. Here, I'm coming up, baby. Hey, everybody. This is Dave. I'm back. And, um, so we're going to talk about a character and a mystery that I absolutely love. And, um... A lot of you may have not heard of this comic book character, but I think things are going to change in the future because uh, she's got a, a pretty major project coming up. And um, I don't mean to be very mysterious. Uh, you probably uh, read the, uh, the episode notes, and so you probably already at least know the name of the person who I'm talking about. But she is a mystery. Uh, and one of the things is, when I first ran across her a year or two ago, the data and the information I found, most of it's not there anymore. And, and I get things go up and down, but there's a whole bunch of new data, mainly result, revolving around new projects that she's going to be part of. And so... I'm going to throw this out. We're going to be talking about a comic book that may or may not have been a covert op, black op. And we're going to be talking about today, October Brianna. What we know about October Brianna is that the origin story 
not her origin story, like Superman's origin story, is he comes from Krypton. The story about how she was created and people got together and wrote her is fiction. Now, was this fiction because one or two of the powers of major powers in the Cold War were trying to use her as a psyops? Was it just a good story? Or did the person who created her think that you needed a good lie to sell something in capitalism? So I'm going to start off with saying the official story. And I'm also starting off by saying the official story is wrong. Why it's wrong is interesting, but we know it's wrong. So um, when I tell you this undoubtedly cool story, keep in mind, it's not true. So now that I've ensnared you with my carefully laid uh, covert op psyop of telling you that I'm going to tell you her origin story and why it's not true, I'm going to change it up on you. And I'm going to tell you more of who she is, how I found out with her, and then we'll talk to you, uh, about her origins, possible real origins and faux origins uh, at, uh, later in the show. Now, I really want you to believe that I have done this on purpose and that I am using enhanced covert op mental tricks on you to get you to listen to the whole show as opposed to uh, maybe I mixed up my show notes. So, October Brianna is an underground 60s comic book, and it is first published in a, supposedly published in, in the, behind the Iron Curtain. But we're not gonna, that's more of the origin. First published in the Western world, however, in a book, October Brianna, and the Russian Underground. This was a hardbound book, which included quite a bit of the comic books that were supposed to have been smuggled out of uh, uh, the former Soviet Union and client states. It was published by a man named Peter Sadesky. Now, I'm just gonna give you Sadesky's official biography because there's some questions here. He was supposed to have been an avant-garde 60s uh, artist who was influenced by the advent of American comic books in 1963 and a member of an organization called the People's Progressive Pornography Party in which they would basically make comic books that lampooned the Soviet system of which if they were ever found to have copies of these comic books, they'd immediately go to the gulags. He defects in the late 60s, early 70s, and he publishes this book about this uh, People's Progressive uh, Pornography Party uh, group. And in this book is the first thing of October Brianna. Now, October Brianna is going to be officially made by committee. And by 1991, 
uh, Peter Sadesky will have died of a strange, as near as I can tell, because there's a lot of different stories, but as near as we can tell, died of a strange, rare form of brain tumor. So there's conspiracy theories that, you know, he was poisoned by the Soviets or, or whatever. It's also a possibility he just may have got up and left, uh, started a new life. We, we really don't know much about this guy, and that adds to the, the mystery of his comic book character. Now, uh, like you said, he claims that it was made by a committee, and, and as such, it was meant to be had in a very sort of pure communist ideal. It was meant to be owned by people. So, uh, October Brianna is public domain. And that's sort of why we know that she exists now. Uh, the book that Sandisky writes, uh, I'd love to get a copy, but it's about, it's pretty rare. It's about 400 bucks to get a copy. And so I'm, I'm saving my pennies up for it. But, um, so October Brianna is public domain. And that's the, where I first came across her as on a list of public domain characters. And she has been used by many different people in, as a public domain character, uh, including uh, AD2000, which is the, uh, the English comic book magazine, which among other things, Judge Dredd came out of. Now, I, there's not a Judge Dredd October Brianna crossover that I know of, but hint, hint, it's public domain. Whoever has the right to Judge Dredd, you might want to think about that. Um, so she appears several times, uh, appears in several different con, uh, comic books, including um, the very X-rated uh, uh, Cherry Jubilee, but her most famous appearance is in the Luther Arkwright series, where she rescues and makes love to Luther. Um, she comes off as a very sort of Amazonian warrior. So there's been a lot of her in different comic books as guest character because you don't have to pay anyone to use her. Um, and she sort of started the, the whole kind of concept, of, you know, royalty-free character. And so she is this very tall, blonde character um, who wears very little clothing over her breast and then the commando pants. And she uh, has this huge red tattoo on her forehead. And the story that Peter Sadesky said in his book was, well, in Russia, people who had the Red Star tattooed somewhere on their body, if they got pulled over by the cops, they were they got favorable treatment. And so that's sort of, it's supposed to be satirizing, you know, people who have Red Stars. Um, and she believes in the communist principles. She is the spirit of the communist principles of the youth behind, but not the Soviets, and she she sort of she sees the Soviets hijacking and derailing the the 
true meaning of communism. Now we're going to see this in another uh, uh, work of fiction that comes out of the Soviet Union, and, and I love this series, uh, and it's Nightwatch, where there's these two forces, the forces of light and the forces of darkness fight each other, and, and communism was this experiment by the forces of light, but it got hijacked and it fell apart and it got turned into this corrupt sort of dictator, not sort of, but corrupt dictatorship where it was originally had the, the truest and most enlightened and egalitarian ideas. Now, I'm not sure that... I mean, there's probably some truth to that historically. Um, I think if Trotsky had lived and had gained power, I think a Trotsky-Soviet Union would have been much more egalitarian and enlightened than, uh, you know, Lenin's regime and, and definitely much more than Stalin's. Um, so, but she's also sort of the embodiment uh, of the, you know, the pre-Rus indigenous people of, the, of Russia, and that as such, she does not die. She is a spiritual being. And at least one of her stories has her fighting this giant walrus mutated sort of kaiju-type walrus. So Peter Sadesky basically says, and, I, and I've alluded to it, um, that the People's Progressive Pornography Party would come together and they would all sort of contribute and they would write and make these sort of mediograph copies, this DIY comic books uh, underneath the nose of the secret police. And there definitely was a, sort of this DIY arts movement in the Soviet Union uh, at the time. Uh, but he said they'd basically get parties, they would get drunk, and then at the end the, the parties would basically become orgies. That's where the, you know, the, the People's Progressive Pornography Party comes from. Um, and that he finally, the group, decided, hey, he's going to defect. And so the group, they have code names like Lydia and Bullfrog, and uh, he doesn't actually name them, although there's some pictures he claims to be some of the members. Um, they agree that he's going to defect and that he is going to try to publish this, and that he has their permission, but they want October Brianna's story to be known. And so he goes to England and escapes and he defects. And he, he publishes this in, like I said, it's a hardbound book that has quite a few of the pages of the comic books. Uh, and it's called um, October Brianna and the uh, Russian Underground. And at the time, no one really doubts his story. Then in 1991, Sadesky drops off the face of the map. Apparently, like I said, because he had a, a brain tumor. Um, and I, I'm not going to really doubt that, but there's a lot of questions. Some, some people aren't sure. 
And around that time, well, a couple things too. So, David Bowie falls in love with this character, and he wants to make a movie that just, he has an actress picked out, everything, it just doesn't come to. Later on, um, and this was in the 70s, in the 80s, um, Billy Idol gets on one of his forearms a huge tattoo of October Brianna. Um, and he is, you know, greatly inspired. These, these two musicians are, say they're greatly inspired by her. And, and it's kind of interesting that around the same time, uh, and I'm sure there's other things going on, but David Bowie, you know, uh, releases Rebel Rebel, uh, and uh, Billy Idol releases, you know, Rebel Yell. This is the time that they're thinking and, and working on projects about this, this female rebel. But once Sadesky dies, things begin to not add up. And places he said he was when he was in the former Soviet Union, he wasn't. Things he said he did, he just didn't. And it comes to pass that there are two artists that he worked with, not this huge underground collector, but he was working specifically with two artists who also defected to America on a project called Amazonia. And these are where the pictures of October Brianna come from. They apparently were made by two artists in California and San Francisco and they have copies that prove it, you know, some of the original work. And at least one famous one uh, where they were trying to do a, a vampira, and, and it just replaced, you know, the, the, the red tattoo with a, a bat tattoo. So this whole admittedly beautiful, incredible story about the young, struggling artists against the Soviet Union, the People's Progressive, Pornography Party is a lie. Other parts of Sandesky's life is a lie. So, was he just trying to milk these two other artists? So the first thing that comes out is that, no, that Octobriana was this black op that the whole comic book and the whole concept was set up by, you know, the KGB to get Sandusky close to the avant-garde, expatriate Russian and other Iron Bloc nations, or Iron Curtain Bloc nations in England and basically penetrate the, um, the, the, the dissident artist movement in the United Kingdom. And if that was true, it didn't really work because Sandusky just didn't really get close to these other people. But the story on the other side of the world is that, no, it was an attempt by the CIA, which did use art, and they did have things from the Voice of America and, you know, Jackson Pollock paintings to, to, to try to tempt the, the East, you know, into Western beliefs, and into capitalism through art, and then it was an attempt to basically inspire, you know, the people's 
to create organizations like the People's Pornography, Progressive Pornography Party that didn't exist in the Soviet Union, but an attempt to create them. So um, the, the two uh, Czech artists, they actually sue in West Germany uh, back when there was a West Germany. And the court ruled that, yes, that they, that uh, October, what became October Brianna, which was originally a project they were working on with Sadesky uh, called Amazon, it was theirs. But that's about the time Sadesky dies, and so we don't, they don't get anything from it, other than the moral victory that, yes, this is your creation, including they don't get the rights back. Because, you know, they created Amazonia and Sadesky basically put a red star on her forehead and made her, you know, October Brianna, so they may have the rights to Amazonia. They don't have the rights to the more famous product of that, which is October Brianna. So as such, October Brianna is public domain. And, and right now, like I said, if you Googled and YouTube and researched this, you would have found a lot more on that controversy. But most of those articles have disappeared. Mysterious. But, um, and I'm not going to make comment on that. I'm just letting the inflection of my voice say, hmm, mysterious. But the big thing now is October Brianna 1976. And it's still out there as a, you still can, you know, Kickstarter project in which they're making basically, and, and I think this captures the, the 60s, 70s perfectly of October Browner. It's going to be the first blacklight comic where, you know, you watch it, and you, you, you read it, and you shine a blacklight on it, and, and it glows. And that is just brilliant. And what a perfect <coughs> character <coughs> and perfect, you know, subject for, you know, the first, you know, psychedelic blacklight comic. Uh, if you're interested in that, just, uh, just Google, uh, October Brianna 1976, and you'll find all the, the information on the people working on it. And if this is as big as it sounds like it may be, well, maybe, and because she's public domain, we may be seeing more and more October Brianna. And maybe, you know, maybe that's the way the KGB or the CIA wanted it. But I think it's definitely the way she wants it. Okay, so, so this place, it, it, it's so much like, you know, like an evil Winchester mansion. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at stairs that go nowhere. And, and okay, but I'm, I'm going up the real stairs, I think, and... And okay, okay. Um, oh, that's him. I, I think that's my kids. And um, I'm up. I think this is maybe the master bedroom. And, and I'm, I'm seeing. It looks like the, this this green light is like glowing under underneath the the door jam. Okay, I'm I'm at the door and it, it seems to be stuck. I'm I'm pushing on it. I'm, and and okay. And the room is it's just full with green light, and 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 there there there's Sonya, and, and there's there's Solomon, and they're over in a corner, but it, it it's like they're projecting 
a green light, but it's different. What's... There's a, a darker... It, it, it's, it's hard to say. It, it's like an evil feeling green light. It's, it's not coming from the goats. It's... Okay, there's this... There's a slight table here, and, and there's... It's, it's, it's the green gem that was in that painting. It's just sitting there, that painting of... Of... Of, uh... Old man Oleander. But it, it's the gem, and it's just... Um... It's weird. I'm, 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 I'm moving towards it. Um, it, 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 it hurts to, 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 to get close to it, but okay, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna smash it with my mag light. It, it, it's, it's like there's, there's all the, these, these spirits. They're just, they're just flying right through the, the floorboards and, and through the ceiling. They're, they're just flying out and, and okay, it, it's just, oh, they're just like, like hundreds of spirits, and they just sort of flew out, I mean, I, I'm not sure what was going on here, but, but it's, 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 it's not right, I, I, I I'm, I'm pulling up stakes, let's see, let me check, okay, yeah, let me, let me check the ch kids, you guys look alright, okay, I'll tell you what, we're gonna, we're gonna take you over to Dr. Pinky's, we're gonna, we're gonna have Dr. Pinky check you out, come on, come on guys, I wonder what, I wonder what Pinky charges for an exorcism. Okay, um, alright, come on, let's, let, let's head out of here. Okay, hey, um, I'm wrapping up, uh, Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans first, uh, our, uh, on-site remote, uh, broadcast, um, you could say we had technical difficulties, but, uh, okay guys, let, let let's get out of here. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening to Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans with David Heath as Farmer Dave. I've been your editor and producer and announcer, D.B. Spitzer. You can find all the back episodes wherever you find People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, Black Clock Audio Tales, Articulate Warbling, or most places you find Articulate Warbling, and of course, Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. You can find t-shirts at pgttcm.com. Look for the store. And Dave's Corner of the Universe. Just search for that. You'll find Dave's blog where he talks about comic books, Star Trek, Star Wars, and all kinds of other nerd stuff that you love. And if you like this, you're going to like what's happening to this audio feed. It's going to be a lot more Dave talking about comic books. It's going to be a lot more me talking about not just the Cthulhu mythos. It's going to be book reading still. There's going to be theme months. And it's going to be kind of like if all the shows on this feed kind of got smushed together. All right. Well, I hope you like it. I'm, I'm, I'm liking it so far. So, <sighs> hey, this is what happens when I record first thing in the morning, this, this end bit. Like, I gotta get this episode out. And of course, this episode is recorded at Badger's Drift Studios in Portland, Oregon. And Dave's part is recorded at Dave's Underground Illuminati Base in Orleander, Oregon. All right, thank you again so much. Keep listening. And uh, if someone accidentally sends you a, a tape from Oleander, Oregon, send it my way to Badger's Drift Studios in Portland, Oregon, and we'll put it on the show. Hey! Do you have anything that you want to say to the show? Contact Dave or uh, contact, contact pgttcm.com. We've got a contact page. And say that it's about Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans or Doug's. And uh, 
we'll answer that question. We'll talk about stuff. All right. Well, thank you again so much, everyone. Thank you for being faithful listeners. The goats say hey. Dave says hey. Stay safe. Wash your hands. Be awesome. Don't be a jerk. And I love you.